Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, Word Travels Story Week kicks off this Friday and runs until Sunday, the 14th of November, featuring an international lineup of performance poets, storytellers, hip hop artists, and weavers of new and traditional forms of oral storytelling. Later in the hour, I'll be joined by Andy Stewart, a performance poet whose work blends rap, hip-hop, rhythm and classical poetry, winding around themes like queer Christianity, LGBTQ issues and privilege. But soon, it's 1953 in Victoria's Southern Grampians and 10-year-old Lawrence is growing up in an isolated property with his lively young brother and overworked mother. A picture and war medal is all that's left of his father. Lawrence is curious, sensitive and just learning to see the world in fresh colours when an incomprehensible act makes him retreat, taking refuge in a life lifted only by his art and still vivid imagination. But will he now inflict his pain on others or can he find beauty in defiance of what he lost? Infinite Splendours is Miles Franklin Award winner Sophie Laguna's beautifully crafted and deeply troubling new novel, grappling with the legacy of trauma and the transcendence of art. Sophie joins me very soon. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. It was sunset. I was on the back porch in Mother's Canopy Swing looking over the day's work. I imagined clouds on the canvas extending beyond its border, obscuring my hands as I drifted over the work, seeing without thinking or purpose, empty finally of the need to paint. That's an excerpt from Infinite Splendours, Miles Franklin winner Sophie Laguna's beautifully wrought and deeply troubling new novel. The book follows Lawrence, a curious, sensitive young boy, just learning to see the world in fresh colours when an incomprehensible act makes him retreat, taking refuge in a life lifted only by his art and still vivid imagination. Lawrence seeks beauty and light even even as he grapples with complicated and disturbing desires. Sophie Laguna joins me now to discuss her latest very thought-provoking book. Sophie, welcome to Backstory. Thank you, Mel. Sophie, you've long been an author that I've greatly admired, both in your uh, facility for language, uh, the pacing, the the tone of your writing is always incredibly poetic and, and finely crafted, but you almost invariably with your adult books deal with very difficult subject matter, quite commonly violence against children. Uh, it's often done from the perspective of a child as well, which which kind of adds a layer of, um, of kind of disturbing innocence uh, to the voice. I want to talk to you about this because uh, I, I did listen to an interview that you did on this 
this latest book where you talked about reading Cormac McCarthy's Child of God and, and mm-hmm. you said how beautifully poetic his writing was but how deeply disturbing um, <laughs> the subject matter was. I think sometimes even more so for the beauty of the writing. Talk to me about yeah. why you've kind of found your medium this way. Well, it's interesting, as you're speaking, Mel, I'm thinking that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Because I was so horrified by that, by Cormac's book, that I could barely finish it. Coming from me, it's odd, isn't it, you know? And I'm really somebody who is easily shocked and, and unsettled and outraged, you know? So it's not like I've got a thick skin, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. I'm sorry to interrupt. I I wanted to kind of press you on that because I had a theory and I would love you to tell me what you think about it. I'm scared I'm going to... No, well, it's it's more that I feel like your characters in a way are trying to transcend what's happening to them and you're doing that with the authorial voice where you're, you're kind of really dwelling on the beauty even as these awful things are happening. So in a way, you're, you as the authorial voice are escaping from the awfulness of this and finding the beauty in life around it. That, that's sort of my read on why you've managed to do this and, and the fact that then the edges of this, um, of this awfulness um, they're not dulled in a way. They're made more, even more kind of affecting by this beautiful writing. I think, um, Mel, you might be right. I mean, I, you know, I could never articulate what it is that my own unconscious process because it's exactly that, unconscious. But you've articulated it, I think, um, really. It's very, you know, your, your insight is... Um, yeah, I think you might be spot on. Um, I am more aware in the writing process, definitely with Infinite Splendours, of the beauty and the light in the novel. And really, most of Lawrence's life, the, 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 you know, the greatest number of years he has is spent in considering light and studying light, the impact of light in a very literal sort of a way, even though he endures the unendurable as a, as a young person. So um, what am I trying to say? I mean, again, it's unconscious. Am I trying to say that our human capacity for recovery and redemption and hope and meaning is great and we can't be crushed or, or, or something? I'm not yeah. sure, you know... Yeah, when I sit down, Mel, to do these works, I'm, I'm, I'm relaxed, I feel playful, I feel like I'm exploring. I don't begin with any kind of a very serious rationale, you know. I, I don't think, oh, I better do this in a really poetic way to make anything particularly palatable. I just, over, over the weeks that I'm writing the novel, I begin to bond. I can't help but bond with my, with my people, with the cast of characters. And so the thing unfolds. But I don't, I don't know that. I don't know what it's like going to be like for a reader. I, I, I don't know the effect. Mm-hmm. Of, I, I don't know how distressing it will be. I don't know about being pushed to the very, you know, because readers sometimes speak to me about their experience. It's really different coming from the inside, creating the piece. I create the piece of my own, to my own satisfaction, for reasons I don't, I don't even ask myself to understand. It brings me meaning and joy and it's, it's, I suppose, why, if I'm trying to understand why do I make, I make the stakes high and then we can really understand the power of artistic expression. If we take a soul that has been shattered, 
you know, and then rebuilt by art. Well, it, I suppose to exaggerate it in this way might, might explain the process. Absolutely, and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of other disquieting elements that I really want to talk about because I think you've really managed to capture them so so you know, disturbingly well. <laughs> um, you know, this idea of art ameliorating, you know, life even as it eviscerates um, its subjects in some ways as well is something I want to come back to. But let's just go back a step because uh, I want I want people to kind of get a sense of the structure of the book. Mm-hmm. Could you sort of describe, um, you know, set the scene for, for the listener in mm-hmm. terms of what the book, how the book sort of spans this life? Okay. So the story begins um, when Lawrence is 10 years old, Lawrence Lohman. He lives on a 40-acre property with his mother, Louise, and his brother, Paul. Uh, they live at the foot of the southern Grampian Mountains, and he's particularly bonded with one mountain called Mount Wallace that he sees as a kind of a guardian almost. And he looks at it through his window at night, and he romanticises it, and it's an important mountain to him. He's bonded with his brother. It's a kind of joyful home. He's very secure. He happens to have a have really good, uh, a terrific teacher. He discovers painting. Um, he intuits that there are shadows in his mother's past that he doesn't quite understand. Um, but he's he's bonded with her um, and his neighbour. His world is quite secure. And then um, there is a, a big change in the family life when um, uh, Louise's brother comes and, uh, and comes to stay. And then there is a, uh, a process that um, Lawrence is drawn into and he is betrayed in... in in an unspeakable way and he's changed by that and then we watch as he grows older and we watch him um, work and be in the world to some degree and how risky that is for Lawrence so he withdraws and he begins to paint. Absolutely. And this is where uh, this transformation that you have in the book where you, you know, we're in Lawrence's child voice, we have that experience of this moment of devastating transformation. Uh, It's a real uh, masterful writerly act because we are already in the first person when um, his perspective shifts. Suddenly he, you know, he loses his ability to speak fluently. He he gets a stutter um, due to, to his kind of trauma um he's experiencing the world differently and we're experiencing it with him which leads Mm -hmm. to a very sort of um you know complicated uh way of seeing through the Mm. narrator's eyes i found this point even perhaps more disturbing where we're starting to sort of grapple with with uh the ideas that um that lawrence has as an adult um how he's trying to metamorphosize his experiences Mm. into something beautiful and that kind of dangerous area that he's playing in that that you're starting to see maybe he is you know affecting this idea of of you know using a muse um without perhaps um thinking about the muse as a person perhaps in a way that he has experienced without getting into too much detail. Um, I found this, and I understand you say as a writer you're not sure of the effect you're going to have on the reader, but I found this a particularly disturbing effect and one that, you know, Mm. I guess um, we can talk about in other other works of Mm. literature. Is it the job, do you think, to a certain extent of a writer to push readers into these uncomfortable territories? Is that... You know, in good literature, are we challenging ourselves to be in the skin of people that we wouldn't maybe rather not be under the skin of? 
all I can tell you, Mel, when I'm when I'm making the piece, that on a conscious level, my alliance is with the character and his story. I'm not thinking of pushing readers anywhere. There isn't a reader in the room. It's me and it's him. And I am telling his story with as much integrity and craft as as I can. And so I'm not thinking of pushing the reader. I don't know what, what it will be like for a reader. I know I have to be true to him. I know I have to be brave. I know that if he has to go there, I can't take the easy way. I can't take the easy way out. I know how far I can push myself. So I, I, there's a whole lot of things. As the architect of the story, I know I'm safe. And if we really um, unpack the story, and I'm wary of, of giving away spoilers, mm. there's a great deal that doesn't happen. We know there is one person in the story who is compromised, and it's him. And it's him, and I know that from the start. So I know how much damage will be done. I know the scenes that I'm going to have to endure. I know how brave, you know, I have to be. I know I can't take shortcuts. I know I have to do the work of imagining the story. And I think the reason my, why the work is has the impact that it has is because I have stopped to feel and imagine alongside the protagonist his or her sufferings. So I'm deeply bonded and he's infused with that devotion that I feel for him. So he lives. So we can read all number of, and we do, where the culture and media, we're drenched in stories of violence. But when, I, when I'm writing these stories, you're really in the shoes of, I suppose. I mean, I'm presuming this is the, this is what I'm told. You know, you're you're caring, you're caring. But you aren't able to turn away no. because you've identified with him, and you're caring. And we, you do sometimes have to put the book down to process the amount that you do care, which is obviously your strong yeah. ability as a writer that's clearly empathising with your character. That you actually enable the readers to do the same, which is why it has yeah. such a powerful impact. If you've yeah, just, well, I mean, I yeah. never, I, I, I don't need to put him down. There's the, there's the contradiction. So that's why it's different for me as creator. Lawrence, for me, carries a great deal on my behalf. So for for me, he brings me great kind of he he makes me feel more peaceful, he makes me feel calm, he makes me feel better having him around or he's it, that's what it feels like in the you know in the course of the couple of years that I'm writing and he's with me and he, and he's the most beautiful companionship in a way maybe because of the way he suffers for his flaws for his humanity he's more emotionally perhaps honest with the world than I am and he's so you know I really I really do I really did admire him greatly and I was always grateful that he was sort of traveling the road with me even though I know that might sound you know I don't know how it sounds so I never put him down you know you know what I mean I never needed to put him away and I was asked recently do I am I do I am I overwhelmed by, by what he has to go through I'm exhausted by it but it's never it's really never like that with him, and he is—he's a, a character in love with life, and and um, I saw his life as really meaningful, more meaningful, with greater bliss and connection than many other lives who go through. Um, yeah, I, I saw he was gifted. He was gifted, and uh, he understood the beauty of of life. 
If you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Sophie Laguna about her latest book, Infinite Splendours. Sophie, you have obviously uh, wound quite a lot of uh, literary references into this book, uh, a lot of um, references to art, particularly yeah. this this yeah. kind of comparison with Van Gogh that's impossible to mm. escape, um, you know, mm. with the sort of adult mm. Lawrence and his relationship with mm. his brother. Um mm. But I'm, I'm really, I actually thought, particularly the Robinson Crusoe um, quotes, yeah. I was thinking back to a Wilkie Collins book where there's a character that, that finds solace constantly in Robinson Crusoe and a, oh a, a quote from... Oh, wow. <laughs> didn't realise. Yeah, a quote for anything can be found in Robinson Crusoe. And I thought, you know, that yeah. you are sort of really leading the, the reader with a lot of these references as well. Can you talk yeah. about um, the echoes that you've wound into this book? Well, again, because I, I think I'm, I really am an intuitive writer. So I am doing what comes naturally in a creation. So I might have an idea. It, it arrives on the page. Say, you know, say I'm working at my desk that day and um, the idea of Robinson Crusoe will just arrive quite naturally on the page. I don't study a set of possibilities or what am I looking for. I know I'll, you know, it just, it'll arrive, come somewhere from my unconscious. And if it fits and it feels resonant and it feels like there might be more layers I can explore there. And then I read Robinson Crusoe and then I look at a lot of the, um, you know, I'll, I'll look at those quotes more carefully. Then it really begins to come alive. Um, and, and the same with those letters from those artists. I, I'm just really quite relaxed about, uh, about it. I won't, I, and, of course, I won't be thinking of the effect on the text. I mean, there is no effect on the text. I'm just inside it doing what pleases me or, or what feels rich and what, what feels exciting, what's juicy to me. And those letters between artists... Um, I've, I've always found um, those letters deeply interesting. And, um, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. It's such an interesting thing, these letters between artists, because what you're, you know, you're really colouring the story with this idea of the art as, a, as an independent thing on its own and then the life mm -hmm. that informs it. And you're playing mm -hmm. between those lines constantly. So these communications um, between artists and, and people that they care about um, show something about them um, that maybe will colour the work for you sometimes even make you recoil from the work. It, it kind of really made me think a bit about uh, Lewis mm. Carroll and, you know, the sort of latter interpretation of, of, you know, his relationship with the subject, his muses, um, that led to him writing Alice in Wonderland, this great mm. children's book that, that can now mm. be coloured as a very disturbing work when you think yeah. about the fact that there, it's very that. likely that he had a predilection for children. Um, mm. So this idea of uh, particularly the child muse when it comes to an artist is really a disturbing element that's wound into this book that I felt like um, just gave it another, it yeah. let yet another layer yeah. of connection with our yeah. relationship with art, the art of an artist and trying to divorce yeah. it from their life. Um, that question yeah. is constantly hovering around this book. Is that something you thought yeah. about? Or again, you say that you're an intuitive writer, yeah. so you're led by the story, yeah. but, but yeah. did that, I mean, I felt as though that was a reflection in this book in this work? Well, this is going to sound crazy. You're much better at speaking about what I'm doing than I am. <laughs> you know, the way you have described that and the way you spoke earlier about what it is that I'm doing in my fiction, you as outside of it, 
you can see what it is that I'm doing and find all the words for it. I am on the inside just making something, just making something, as if, as if I was a composer, putting, making music. I, I'm not much better. I don't know that I'm much better than a composer might be at saying why they used a particular pitch or an instrument or, or a sound there and not in some other place. Um, so, I am interested you, you in that. Same, yeah, I, I did. I was aware of it. Now I was aware of it. Um, you know, I, I was aware of the way children have been used as muses and abused, and the contention around that and the politics around it. I, I was, but not in any way that's uh, not in any conscious way, not in any conscious way that's guiding my hand. Mm. Well, I suppose the more but obvious one is the Hanson um, kind of comparison. The, uh, Hanson yeah, yeah. Uh, comparison, but I think um, I think look, I, I really feel as though it's such an interesting um, revelation that you you feel like you know you're in the character and so that you're creating things as the character would, and that kind of um, mm. you know the way you talk about um, creating character as intuitive must be informed, though, by this, the, by an act of, um, you know, I, I guess creative alchemy. You've taken a whole mm. lot of um, things that you've, you've been exposed to or that yeah. you've read and then yeah, you've turned exactly. it into something. Different exactly. writers write differently about this. Um, yeah. Some say they plan and yeah. they consider. How do you yeah. structure then? Do you actually just let the work flow and see where it takes you? Or do you have a sense? Um, do you sort of, you know, suddenly see things through the character's eyes where it's going to go? Or is it no, as much a surprise to you as it would be the character? I, no, I absolutely do plan and consider the, uh, the, the, the narrative arc of the story very early on. And maybe that acts as a kind of, um, that scaffolding, the structure, keeps me safe within certain boundaries. So I can allow the work to go to the places that it does, but my structure is decided upon very early on, you know, the first month, and it doesn't really waver. The big steps in the story will stay as they are, as I decide that they are early in the process. Um, so I don't just, oh, this character comes here and this... No, I, that's quite an anxious time until all those critical decisions are decided upon, and 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 the essence also of who all of the who every single character is. It's, it's I use that word essence because it's 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 a feeling of who they are. It's a it's a feeling. So that's not a that's not a particularly smart way to put it, is it? But I know who they are, I, and and so until I've decided that, I'm uncomfortable or it's an anxious sort of a time. Um, I can't remember what else I was trying to say. But, yeah, <laughs> no, I look, I, plot. I need to know plot early on. Yes. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you have a very yeah. strong sense of the the structure of the story, but you I allow do. the words to to play and the character to develop within that that con- yes. confines of that. Exactly, and and the two will happen. They're inextricably linked. The process of getting to know the character layer by layer, and what that character's set of symbols, if you like is and, and, and which metaphors and ideas will begin and then continue. Say Robinson, Robinson Crusoe, um, painting the sky, then the letters of John, John Constable will begin to inform those ideas. Um, you know, the relationship with his brother Paul, climbing the mountain together. Yeah, that will all deepen at the very same time as I'll be deciding who the uncle is, how that plays out. 
um, what the uncle's history is, what his sufferings are. And when I'm... There aren't really any villains in the story either for me when I'm inside it. So I think that's because people are human in the story, as Uncle, too, is human. And I was, you know, I was moved by his his experience of polio when he was a boy and that he was mm. in that house looking up at a ceiling that he came to know so well. I think perhaps uh, yeah. that, that is, in fact, the most disturbing thing uh, for a reader of a novel is humanising um, the unimaginable. And I think that you, you know, or incomprehensible, this is uh, something that you do very effectively. So we can't simply monsterise terrible acts. They are human acts and that makes it even more um, difficult, I think, in many ways to read. But Sophie, I, I would love to continue to talk to you. There's so much more to unpack. The, the amazing um, setting, for example, in the Grampians alone mm. is worth an entire conversation. I'm so happy to see <laughs> I agree, that I agree. <laughs> such a wonderfully um, you know, artistic and um, literary scene um, that, that you've kind of um, managed to evoke. Um, so thank you, Sophie. I, I do you, hope Mel. to be able to speak with you again um, oh, me too. very Thank soon. You. Um, thanks so much and um, uh, My I pleasure. appreciate your fulsomeness in this, um, on this difficult topic. Thank you, Mel. It's been a pleasure. Uh, that was author Sophie Laguna talking about her book Infinite Splendours, which is out now through Alan and Unwin. It's a, a really um, extraordinarily beautifully written book. Um, it does deal with difficult subject matter that some people may find triggering, but uh, I recommend if you read this, um, read it all the way through to get a good sense of, uh, of all of the kind of story beats that, that flow and where it ends up. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Word Travels Story Week kicks off this Friday and runs until Sunday, the 14th of November, featuring a local and international lineup of performance poets, storytellers, hip hop artists, and weavers of new and traditional forms of oral storytelling. And joining me now is one of the featured artists, Andy Stewart, is a performance poet whose work blends rap, hip hop, rhythm, and classical poetry, winding around themes like queer Christianity, LGBTQ issues, and and privilege. Andy, welcome to Backstory. Hello, nice to be here. Well, it's so lovely to have you. And uh, so often on this show, I am talking to people about written work. So it is a unique joy <laughs> for me to welcome someone who uh, is, you know, really a perpetuator of a form that is much, much deeper and older than the written word, uh, writing for performance or for spoken word. Andy, I would love to talk to you about how you found your voice in this particular form. Yeah, for sure. And actually, it's a bit of a funny story. I first came across uh, spoken word poetry because I went along to a random once-off event in Hobart because I had a crush on a girl that was going to be there. Um, (laughs) I wonder how much art starts with a story like that, a crush. (laughs) A lot of boy poets uh, have the same story. Um, Unfortunately for me, uh, that didn't work out with her. Um, But I fell in love with poetry. Um, just the, the moment I saw people on stage 
reading their words, it was it was this, this moment of, hey, I can do that. I went home and I wrote my first poem and I took it along to the the one open mic night in my town. Um, and from there I was, I was, I was hooked. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because like we, it's such a, a an incredibly primal thing, um, having someone tell you a story. Uh, it's no secret to those who know me that I love being read to. I love the, um, this idea of story time. Um, it, there's something that, um, that really reaches deep into childhood, that feeling of being cared for, um, someone sat telling you a story it's quite mesmerizing and yet it's something that that sort of has been uh, you know within our sort of modern world pushed a little bit to the margins I feel as though that's changing though is that something you've noticed in the spoken um, poetry scene or the spoken word scene uh, it is yeah I do think I do think it's becoming it's it's coming into the um, the spotlight a little bit more more people are taking notice of, of spoken word poetry I think something that's happening is a lot of poets are starting to fuse their art with musicians um, and create create these these works of art that have both the musical, the backing, and the emotive elements of that with the words on top, and that creates this whole other dimension of um, auditory emotion. Yeah, I, re- I remember remember going to a, a spoken word event in Brixton in an old church and someone was up on stage and it was a real blend of sort of music and rap and um, and poetry in this absolutely compelling and slightly sort of intoxicating blend that the, that the crowd was moving almost as though sort of manipulated by the speaker in a way that I haven't really seen outside of, say, I don't know, a rave or something like that. Mm-hmm. It was really mm-hmm. quite extraordinary. Um, is, there, is this something that you feel as a, as, a, as a storyteller is slightly addictive, the impact that you have on an audience? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I um I have a classical music background myself, so I love to infuse my poetry with those rhythmic and melodic elements that I've picked up on through my musical training, and to be able to yeah capture an audience in the melody and the musicality of my words, and carry them through a poem uh, that's crafted in a way that brings them to a peak and then you know settles them back down in the in in the sense of a in the way that a song would. It's, yeah, there's nothing quite like it. Yeah. Now, I, I'm really interested in uh, these uh, this description of your work as blending rap, hip-hop, rhythm and classical poetry. Um, I, I sort of think it's a really, you know, as you've said, you've kind of, um, you've got a background where you obviously have a sensitivity for, for music and musicality as well. Um, did you find that your work has been evolving more towards um, towards this end of things? Or is it sort of, you know, a quite, um, you know, you, you've sort of found your own voice that's outside of these, these kind of rough categories? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, and my my work has definitely evolved and is continuing to evolve from where it started. So it was it was more heavily rhythm and rhyme focused when I began writing, um, and it's definitely more obviously so. Whereas now it's evolved to still incorporate those elements, but in a slightly more refined way of them being not as obvious, if that makes sense. So I think it's 
it's evolving out of those elements into a more refined, unique voice that's my own. But in that, it's also taking on other elements of of musicality and and poetic techniques that I'm learning from other people. It's a highly it's a forms um, performance writing is highly associated with you know I you know issues personal issues with um, a sense of um, you know understanding someone's identity with protest with politics you know almost more comple- compellingly in some ways than you know these longer form written pieces maybe do you think that that is a big part of this scene that it's not you know um, this idea of, of solipsism is kind of drifting away into a much more robust idea of a of kind of almost a political movement or a sense of empowerment is that is that kind of a feeling that's starting to pervade this this um this in this area i guess this community oh yeah 100 percent uh i think spoken word poetry is a platform to uh, minority groups to to say their piece i know one of the, my favorite things about slam poetry events is that I get two minutes to get up on stage and say what's on my mind and people have to listen. And it's it's different from written poetry and music in that it's focused on the words and it's, it's that poet's voice that gets that stage and that time. And that lends itself to far more political pieces and punchier pieces that are asking for drastic change and demanding demanding that people to listen and pay attention and and stop ignoring what's going on. Now, Andy, I would love to put you on the spot and ask you to actually read our, or perform um, a small piece of your work so people can get a sense of what it is that we're talking about. Yeah, for sure. I, um, I can do one of the pieces that I did at the Opera House last year. Oh, wonderful. That got me second place at the Australian Poetry Slam. Oh, I would love to hear it. I had a cigarette and watched the sunset. Is that not some frat boy poetic? I don't know what is. I've got the aesthetic down pat, from the snap back to the kicks, and if the shoe fits, it'll make a neat measurement for every unsolicited dick pic I only ever dealt with in the third degree. I got lucky. I've always been one of the boys. Never thought to consider the consequences of counting kisses like cuts on a backboard got beat down for being a butch and boasted about being better than all the men who molded their manhood on misogyny. I got lucky. I've always been one of the boys. With six feet of privilege passing me safely through dark parks and empty parking lots, I walk in the shadows with the torch turned off and yeah... I've been taking my masculinity for granted, and granted, I'm still learning to be a man. My father never taught me how to shave. My mother only ever warned me to be wary of those boys trying to win over purity with promises of best intentions, taking trophies for their cabinets, and in her metaphor, I was always the trophy and never the competitor, but now my beard is growing in. And I've picked out a razor by my hand, shake when I use it, and this is not an excuse or a diagnosis. It is a promise and an apology. If I got lucky, I was never one of the boys. I got to bear witness to the beauty of bonding in bathrooms over cute dresses and upholding your best friend's hair back, and I never quite got it. But I got to be in it. I got lucky. I got to be one of the girls. 
you know, the unconditional love that exists in the feminine. And so I say to every woman and I say to every human who has given me a second and a third chance, I say, I promise, I promise to be better, better than one of the boys. Wow, thank you so much. Uh, If you've just joined us and caught the end of that really incredible piece, that was Andy Stewart, uh, who was sharing his work. Um, And also we are talking about more generally um, the idea of spoken word in light of the fact that the uh, Word Travels Story um, Festival is about to kick off on Friday and will be continuing until the 14th. And Andy, I understand you are one of the featured guests. Uh, When is your performance likely to be happening over that time? Yeah, so uh, I'm doing one of the performances that I'm doing is on the, hang on, I'll just bring up my calendar (laughs) because I've forgotten. It's on the the 8th of November. It's an event called Word for Word, uh, which is at midday online. And it's, so I'll be in this event with a couple of other poets, a couple from Canada. And what we'll be doing is we'll we'll be trading poems. So we'll roll a dice off of the coin for who gets to go first. And then each poet will perform, and then the next poet will, will choose something from that from the piece that was just performed, and pick something out of their own repertoire that answers it. And it will be a kind of a bit of a round robin of of trading poems that all relate to each other, which is on yeah, November the eighth on Sunday, which I'm really really excited for because I love I love bouncing off other poets. I love trading ideas like that. It's so wonderful, and this is really a crazy international event. Um, there's yeah. wonderful local and international First Nations artists who are sharing um, their stories. Um, we have like incredible acts. Um, including hip-hop poet um, Reggie Gaines um, and beatbox champion Darian Doshan and Inuit throat singers slash hip-hop act Scylla and Rise, which uh, is alone, I think, worth uh, attending the festival um, to see. It's really a showcase, a lot of this, of um, the transcendence that we get through the online world and the marriage of that and spoken word. What does it feel like to be a part of, of something like this? It sort of has never happened before we were sort of landed in this situation. It, it feels like being on the forefront of, of art, like on the, on the forefront of something brilliant that's just going to keep spreading and growing and becoming more innovative and creative. Uh, I think one of my favourite things about performance poetry is that there are no rules about it. It hasn't been commercialized and, you know, sectioned off in the way that music has or films and stories, other kinds of storytelling has. So everybody everybody is able to explore the art form from their own unique voice and there's no one telling them that that's the wrong way to do it. And so with this, this growing creativity and this festival that's bringing together international artists on an online uh, format for so many people to access, yeah, I feel like it's... It's the start of something that no one really knows where it's going to go, but it's going to be fantastic. Absolutely. And it's really spanning, you know, um, Asia, South Asia, um, 
across to Africa, um, around the globe, um, as well as just extraordinary local artists being featured as well. Um, Andy, I'm really, I feel as though this has um, really just whet my appetite for more incredible uh, spoken word artists to come on the show, just to really give us a sense of what language can do in that ver- in the most powerful of, of human mediums, which is when we talk to one another, which we do all too rarely now, I have to say. I really uh, am really grateful that you um, came on the show today and performed uh, a piece for us. Thank you so much for joining us, Andy Stewart. You're so welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, That was um, spoken word performance artist uh, Andy Stewart, um, who will be part of the uh, World World Travels Travels. Story Festival, which kicks off on Friday and uh, carries on through until the 14th, featuring just such an extraordinary array of artists and performers from across the globe. Um, And as Andy pointed out, it really does show just how incredibly flexible and broad ranging, as well as how far, you know, back in terms of, uh, of, you know, our own sort of traditional ways of telling stories, um, this form reaches back into um, as well as embracing very much uh, the future. That's all we have time for today on Backstory. Um, If you do want to find out more about the Spoken Word Festival, you can go to uh, wordtravels.info, hop on wordtravels.info to find out more about the festival or to book tickets. And uh, I would like to thank my um, guest today, Sophie Laguna, who joined me earlier to talk about her book, Infinite Splendours, which is out now through Alan and Unwin, uh, and of course, Andy Stewart, who joined me earlier and uh, performed a really amazing piece. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.